Hello, everybody, and welcome to the one-year anniversary episode of Unquestionable with Calvin Smith. I mean, I honestly can't believe that it's already been one whole year, because, I mean, time flies, right? And so many things have changed since the show's beginning. But today, I wanted to take a look back on some of the conversations I've had with guests, as well as some of the solo episodes I've done, complete with audio clips and a few updates to the information provided in previous episodes. So let's get started. Now, before we get down to business, I thought it would be fun to take a look at how the show has grown over the past 365 days. So, as of the recording of this episode, which is just a couple days before the actual anniversary, um, as of right now, I have 247 followers on Instagram, 49 followers on Twitter, 167 followers on Facebook, 880 followers on TikTok, that's really cool, and 161 subscribers on YouTube. And the highest current performing episodes being the Season 2 premiere with Johanna James, obviously super cool interview, and the Schist Disc episode, which was a very close second, actually. These may not be big numbers to some, but to me it means a lot. Even if it was just one person, as long as the information I'm advocating for is being absorbed by someone, then that's all that matters to me. The point of the show is spreading the word of skepticism of religion and historical narratives, and as I started off with zero followers on anything, completely from scratch, uh, the fact that there's hundreds if not thousands of people that have listened to the show and are still listening to the show, it just really means the world to me, and I, I honestly can't thank you guys enough for the love that you've given, and just remember to share the show on you know, social media, and uh, make sure to share it with your fellow history and theology nerds. Now, before all else, I have a super special guest announcement. So, next week, I have Dr. Greg L. Little actually making yet another appearance on Unquestionable. You guys highly enjoyed the discussion that Greg and I had in our first interview where we talked about Bimini Road in the Bahamas and the possibility of the lost civilization of Atlantis once existing. I actually just finished his book, Mound Builders, Edgar Cayce's Forgotten Record of Ancient America, and knew I needed to have another talk with him about mounds in America, and of course more Atlantis talk. So look forward to next week when Mounds in America with Dr. Greg Little premieres on all streaming platforms and on YouTube. And now before I get into some highlight clips from the past year of the show, I wanted to talk about one episode in particular that I did on the Schist Disc, which I mentioned before a second highest performing podcast. If you aren't familiar with the contents of that episode or with the Schist Disc in general, I encourage you to go listen to it right now to get more familiar with it. But this episode gained a good amount of traction compared to most of the solo episodes I've done, which was actually surprising to me. Um, I put, you know, the same amount of work into it as I always do, but it just, I don't know, it it's kind of weird to me that that one picked up more than the other ones that arguably I might have tried a little harder with, but I'm not complaining. So, let's get down to what some of the people have said in the comments section on YouTube about the Schist Disc. Explorer21 on YouTube says, Has anyone tried a 3D design of this in a speedboat? As far as I know, I don't 
believe this has ever been done, uh, which I believe I alluded to in the episode as well. I feel like this would be a pretty simple thing to do nowadays, as pretty much anyone can get a 3D printer nowadays if you got a couple hundred, maybe a thousand or so dollars. So if anyone with a 3D printer out there wants to test this, get yourself some measurements of the schist disk. They're pretty easy to find online. And let me know your results. I would honestly be super curious to know. Alza comments, nice ashtray. Uh, sorry, but this would have to be the most intricate ancient ashtray I've ever seen. They tell too many lies, says centrifuge. That's it. And for those of you who don't know what a centrifuge is, uh, think about the movies and stuff you see of people putting little vials of fluid in a spinning machine. It's basically a device that uses centrifugal force to separate various components of a fluid. So, I personally see no reason to think that this was a centrifuge of any sort, but it is an interesting idea, so I felt the need to bring it up. But as far as comments goes, that's pretty much all I have that I really felt the need to mention. So thanks again to those listeners that put in their two cents, and if you would like a chance to be mentioned on the show and your comment being mentioned on the show... I would appreciate it if you guys would interact with the polls, the questions, and the comments on episodes as often as possible. I would like to try to make a segment at the beginning or end of each show talking about the comments and concerns of the previous episodes. So make sure you tell me what you think about each episode, either on social media, YouTube, or on listening platforms. As I said before, I want to take a look at some of my favorite personal clips from the show so far. So we're going to start off with my absolute favorite clip of the show so far when I spoke to Robin Corey, the Flat Earther, on why she believes the Earth was a level plane under a firmament. So let's take a listen to the clip and let's talk about it afterwards. Which is shows how everything's... This is the shoal, which is where we're told is fossil fuels from crushed dinosaurs. It's not... This is what the planet lives on. This is what the continental plates... That's what I wanted to ask you. Um, what are your theories about, like, the dinosaurs and meteors? Like, do you think that dinosaurs existed? No. Really? Just, yeah. I mean, all that the people, well, they only started finding dinosaurs, when was it, last century? And what, just under the earth? I mean, all the thousands of people that have been here before us, they didn't find To be fair, to be fair, we have been finding fossils for a very long time. They used to call them dragons because they weren't sure what they dragons were real. um so you used to call them dragons yeah dragons are definitely real well there's a, a, a body about a one that's about a 900 miles long at the top of morocco it's a dead body you can go in and look at it you can go down its throat it's there so look so, it up on google earth so you don't believe that dinosaurs were real but you believe dragons are dragons were real dragons were, were a, a creature that was around and maybe some brontosaurus but not as they as they portray them there's a factory in japan that just pump out a new one every week (laughs) yeah that was a thing so now (laughs) i have to talk about this a little bit first of all dinosaurs are real i'm sorry but evolution is real science is real i'm sorry if you disagree but you're completely and utterly wrong if you don't think dinosaurs and or evolution are real and true The evidence is so incredibly abundant, it's not even a question anymore whether you believe it or not. It's true whether you understand why it is true or not. I'm not claiming to be an evolutionary biologist by any means, nor am I claiming I know everything about evolution or how we came to be what we are today. 
But what I do know about evolution is supported by an abundance of evidence that you can find almost anywhere. As far as the dragon thing, no, absolutely not. I'm sorry, uh, there is no dragon carcass in Morocco. I'm going to explain this a little bit um, about what she's talking about. So Robin is speaking about a video by Mud Fossil University on YouTube. And uh, it took me a minute to find this video. It, it, there's a couple different people really talking about it, but this is the main video that really goes over this theory. So Mud Fossil University on YouTube, which may I mind you is not a real educational facility, uh, but they do have 144,000 subscribers on YouTube, so they're basically doctors. Um, but the video in question is titled, Dragon Carcass Academic Review Requested. In the video, someone shows a Google Earth picture of Morocco, where you can see large dark spots that, to me, don't even really look like scales, but according to the guy in the YouTube video, they totally are, just by looking at them. I, I guess that solves it. Uh, no actual science was used to reach this conclusion in the video, at least that the mud fossil uh, university came to. It's all assumption. The main thing for me with the supposed 900-foot dragon carcass is, what did it eat? And, I, I mean, for example, Spinosaurus. Okay, this is probably a bad example, but like Spinosaurus. It's currently one of, if not the largest carnivore that has ever existed, at least land carnivore, and measured about 50 feet to uh, about 50 to 60 feet in length and is believed to have weighed upwards of 22 tons. Um, roughly equal to the anchor of a cruise ship is what this, uh, this little blip says here. So Spinosauruses were massive, but not anything that would like eliminate all life on Earth or anything like that. Uh, like this dragon would have done. Imagine an animal, a carnivore, 18 Spinosauruses long. That's what this Mud Fossil University is trying to pass off, is that this Spinosaurus times 18-sized carnivore would have lived in Morocco and just died. Um, this dragon would be so large, there simply would not be enough food to support the existence of a 900-foot carnivore. It's just improbable. And not to mention, what about the dragon's family? There couldn't have been only ever one dragon to ever exist. Why have we not found giant dead dragon carcasses all over the world? Or any dragon carcasses of any size? But anyways, this is probably my favorite clip of the show so far. So, dinosaurs are real, and uh, dragons aren't. Well, I guess not according to Robin. I'd be interested to have Robin on again to maybe dive a little deeper into her beliefs on religion, archaeology, and geology since we already touched on Flat Earth. Maybe soon. But let me know your thoughts on the dragon theory. I'm honestly curious to hear your thoughts on it. So with that, we're going to move on to the next clip. For this one, we're going to take a look back on one of my very first guests on the show, Mr. Larry Paul, the director of the American Institute of Pyramid Research. Uh, during Larry and I's conversation... Larry gave me a super special preview of his most recent discovery at the time of recording our interview. So let's take a look at what Larry found while visiting the Menkor Pyramid on the Giza Plateau. Yeah, but there is an alpha and omega there. You can see that plainly the alpha and then the O, uh, you know, rises above it. And it does seem to have seraphs at the bottom like the omega. But, there, the, right. but there's also an inverted V there, which is yes. not really part of an alpha and omega. 
but I call it an alpha and omega because I, I do think it is because uh, my friend Robert Grant, whose birthday it is today, I wrote him, wrote him a birthday poem. And yeah, I saw his, that. Yep. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I had fun doing that. And uh, so he discovered an alpha and omega on the uh, sarcophagus rim in the king's chamber, and, and it's plainly there. You know, there's oh. we've photographs of it, and and uh, you know, so so it's plainly there. And I found an alpha and omega on the outside of the Great Pyramid. And, and Robert Grant agreed with me when I showed it to him when I discovered it a couple of years ago. Okay. So this, that, that's one reason I called this an alpha and omega. This is in a different part of the pyramid. The, the King's Chamber where he found his alpha and omega, uh, that uh, is the public can get in there. Anybody could go up there that pays okay. the entry. But you can't, not anybody can get to where I found this in the pyramid. I had special permission you know, to be there. So that's hard to, you know, do, go through the paperwork and do that and pay the money and everything. Yeah. So this, but, uh, but this one's in there. So I'm just calling it alpha and omega because there is plainly an alpha and omega in the sarcophagus, which is like the central place in the, if, there, if there's a single central place in the great pyramid, it's the, it's that, that empty sarcophagus in the King's chamber. And there's an alpha and omega on that. So this, I really take for granted. This was such a privilege for me to be able to be exposed to this before most people, if not everybody. Larry Paul showed me this clip just a couple days after he took it, and at the time hadn't shared it with his followers on social media. So I literally was one of the first people to see this amazing discovery, and I think I take that for granted. As for the symbols itself, Larry hasn't said much about them since our interview. But as he said, these symbols were found just inside the Great Pyramid in a closed-off area not accessible to the public. These symbols could lay credence to the theory of, quote, sacred geometry, which is the study of the spiritual meaning of various shapes and symbols. And I hope to have an expert in sacred geometry on the show in the near future so we can dive deeper into the subject. I don't know, maybe I can have Larry Paul on again. Uh, because as a layman, I don't know enough about it to even really give an opinion on it, at least at the moment. But the full interview with Larry Paul is available everywhere, and I encourage everyone to listen to the whole thing, because Larry is incredibly well-educated and spends more time at the Giza Plateau than most people do at their own homes. So go take a listen to the full interview right now. Moving on to the next clip, this one comes from my most popular interview yet, the interview with Johanna James. I loved this conversation. If you aren't familiar with Johanna James and her work, get familiar. Because Johanna has spent the last few years of her YouTube career researching ancient sites around the world, and she's doing a fantastic job at it, so I highly recommend her YouTube channel. Let's take a listen to the clip from about halfway through my first interview with Johanna, and then I'll put in my own thoughts. And um, his dad like they have a tradition the indigenous people of egypt have their own traditions and they have an entirely different historical timeline of egypt really? than than the mainstream yeah hmm. um entirely different so they have their own um sort of ages of what happened um the the timeline that we have of ancient egypt is what the french and the british decided it was around 1800 when they first went to egypt and started egyptology they decided to guess um, what the history of Egypt was. And so they decided on the timelines for, for all the kings and everything. Whereas the indigenous people, Comitian people, because um, it was originally called Kemet before it was called Egypt. And um, 
they yeah like they have their own timeline they they have a an oral tradition of the sphinx like the rock of the sphinx um being respected and um people going to it from fifty thousand years ago Hmm. and then they have it it was carved out later into a lion and then only later in the um, egyptian time did they Hmm. whittle the head down to a pharaoh um so the head um was carved much much later so that's the that's the oral tradition that the indigenous people of egypt very interesting um they have their they have their own timelines for the kings and things and they they believe that um a lot of egypt was started a lot earlier than what the british and the french say they say that the first kingdom was whatever was around 3000 bc they think it was more it could be pushed back to as much as 7000 bc they think that the first kingdoms were just like if you get, take the the kingdoms of egypt and stretch it out a lot a lot, lot, right. lot wider um that's more aligning to what their old traditions say so this little fact that Johanna spewed off uh, was something I wasn't necessarily aware of. I had heard about it through the grapevine, but never really knew for sure about it. Um, I was aware that there were a few details that had been doctored by the invaders of ancient Egypt, but I wasn't aware of the extent of the difference. After looking more into it after our initial conversation, I was completely taken aback that the locals of Egypt don't follow the consensus of the history of their own civilization often even going as far as to say that it's improbable or disingenuous. I think this is super important to remember because, let's be honest, it wouldn't be the first time the, quote, white man went and started changing history. This is something that me and Dr. Little talk about a little bit on our interview next week. So I feel like this is something everyone should be aware of sooner than later. And as I have always said, don't just blindly trust what your school textbooks say. Think for yourself. Research things in your own time if you're curious about it. This final clip is coming from my interview with the self-proclaimed ET contactee and Akashic record reader, Debbie Solaris. And also, she hosts her own TV program on the Gaia Network, which is essentially the history channel at night, but all the time, and on steroids. (laughs) All kinds of woo and unsupported claims all the time on that network. No hate on Debbie Solaris. She's a fantastic person. She's literally the nicest person on the planet, so no hate on her. Um, Just, uh, we'll kind of get into it. But anyways, let's listen to a clip from my interview with Debbie Solaris when she was just starting to tell me her story of how she came to believe she was contacted by extraterrestrials. So let's get into it. I went to sleep as normal, but when I came to, I was found myself in a different consciousness that um, I don't even know how to describe it. It was like everything was crystal clear. The colors were brilliant. Everything was so crystal clear and beautiful that I, I just couldn't, um, I just couldn't believe it. You know, um, it was, and as I was looking around, it looked like an extraterrestrial starship. I mean, it it felt like it was a starship. what makes but you say it that? wasn't what's that what makes you say that um uh, that, that um, you think that it was some sort of starship starship um just the way it was configured i guess uh it seemed right. like a starship except it wasn't metallic okay you know what kind of yeah, material so, was it what's that do you know what kind of material it was it looked like light and plasma it was some some sort of material I have never seen before. 
Okay. It was very fluid. Um, so everything would kind of just, I don't know, uh, would, would shift and change as needed, uh, which okay. I thought was interesting. I got you. Uh, now, once again, I loved my talk with Debbie, and I love you, Debbie, if you're listening. But I think that her reasoning for her belief is a little faulty. So her story is that basically 2012, and she had a slight fear that the world was going to end on December 21st, uh, the day before my birthday, funny enough. So she goes to sleep one night, which I believe she says was the April or May before uh, December 21st, 2012, and she essentially has a dream. And then that dictates how she literally lives the rest of her life from this one dream. And this is still how she's living her life today. I kind of thought to myself, Debbie, what if you were literally just dreaming? What if the fear of the world ending was in your subconscious and manifested into a dream which was so vivid that you believed it to be a real experience? I mean, I've had some dreams that were uncanny in how realistic they were, but I'm able to still take a step back and say that it was just a dream. A false reality created by my subconscious to try to decipher ideas and events in my head. How are you so sure that this isn't the case for you, Debbie? And I just feel like she even wasn't super sure how to answer that question when I asked her. A dream alone just isn't sufficient evidence or shouldn't be sufficient evidence to believe in aliens, just like it's not strong enough to believe in a god or spirits or ghosts if you dream of them. It's quite literally your mind making things up. So, do I believe that Debbie believes that she was contacted by aliens and can access the Akashic Records? Sure, I totally believe that she believes that. But, do I believe she was actually contacted by aliens and can access the Akashic Records? No. Uh, sorry, there's just not sufficient evidence for that, and frankly, I think Debbie knows that. Sorry, Debbie. But that's all I have for clips to share today. But the full interviews with Debbie Solaris, Larry Paul, Johanna James, Robin Corey, and even more can be heard on every streaming platform everywhere right now. So make sure to give the full interviews a listen and also check out the other awesome conversations I've had with some other really awesome, interesting people. So next, I want to talk about what's next for the show. Over the past year, the show has grown even more than I ever expected it to, with hundreds of new listeners every day and I want to try to make the show as entertaining as possible for you guys. With that being said, I wanted to tell you guys that I will be taking a step back from covering cryptids, UFO sightings, and historical accounts of UFOs, and all in all, the, I guess you could say, street epistemology type of take I take on things. This means that episodes like The Beast of Jevoudan and The Westall UFO Incident those will be the last of their kind on the show, at least for right now, that could change in the future. Now, there's no particular reason for this. I still thoroughly uh, love talking about UFOs and taking the Socratic type of approach when talking to people, but I think for the most part, I'm going to still be talking to religious people and spiritualists, but I don't think I want to be as gentle as I have been in the past with my questioning. Um, I by no means am saying that I'm going to be a jerk or anything like that to somebody on my show. That's not at all what I'm here to do. But I'm going to be asking some questions to people that may or may not be controversial to my guest at the time. But yes, I will be cutting the show to be about whether ghosts, God, ancient technology, and or Atlantis exists. And of course, I have a couple guests lined up. 
some new and some making their second appearance. You guys know who's next. And uh, we're going to be getting down to business and finding out what is true, no matter what it takes. So this is where we come to an end on the one year anniversary episode of Unquestionable with Calvin Smith. I'm going to get a little bit cheesy here for a second, so just bear with me. But I truly, truly appreciate each and every one of you who listens to the show and comes back every week to listen to more. I really work hard on this show to make it as educational as possible for you guys. I mean, it's basically a second job for me. I have had a few people reach out to me and tell me how much they've learned and how much of a help my show was to them questioning their own beliefs, and it really warms my heart. But as I always say, guys, I just want to know as many true things and as few false things as possible, and that can only happen by questioning everything that you think that you know. So thank you guys so much for listening, and here's to another year of Unquestionable. If you want to hear more of the show, feel free to check me out on all streaming platforms and all social media platforms, everything from Facebook to Twitter, Discord, I'm now on Snapchat, YouTube, uh, literally any and all social medias. I am there if you type in Calvin Smith or Unquestionable with Calvin Smith, or you can check out my link tree in the description of the podcast that has all of my links to everything I do. And please follow me and subscribe to me on everything. You guys have no idea how much it means to me. So until next time, you guys remember, you got to keep questioning everything.